if you will, <clears throat> turn to Nehemiah chapter 7 as we continue in our Old Testament study of the book of Nehemiah. If you had to um, divide the book of Nehemiah, um, you could divide it into two parts. The first six chapters that we've already covered in the last couple months could, could tell us or tell us about the reconstruction of, of the walls of Jerusalem and, and how all that has been coming about. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as we move on. But as we move on into the last seven chapters, you, 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 can, you can look at that part as the re-instruction of the people of Jerusalem because, again, for almost a, a hundred years since Zerubbabel first came on the scene and the temple was, was built, uh, rebuilt, things have kind of deteriorated and, and fallen apart somewhat, although the walls had never been rebuilt. Now they are, and now the people need to be re-instructed in the ways of the Lord. And, and, and so if, if from here on out, basically, from chapter 7 on out, we see that Nehemiah, in, in many ways, takes a back seat. And, and an old friend of ours kind of comes back on the scene that we covered several months ago, Ezra. Ezra was a young man when he came to, to reestablish the people or reform the people after like 80 years after Zerubbabel. And so he had gone back north more than likely and he will come back and it, it will have been some 16 years since he had left that, that, uh, that he shows back on the scene. And so not this chapter, but in, in the future chapters we will see our old friend um, Ezra once again. I don't know if you guys well if you guys weren't here before I told you how much I fell in love with this young man, Ezra. He is just an amazing man. I know I've read his book. I've never studied it the way I, I studied it or taught it. And I just thought, I think he's my new faves. You know, I think I got a new BFF, you know. And so man, oh man, if you weren't here, you can go back online and listen to those studies. I had a blast sharing them. So last week, um, as we went through chapter 6, we finished chapter 6, we, we, we learned that the wall is now finished, because that's what Nehemiah was called to come and do, to rebuild the wall. And it tells us that they finished it in 52 days, which is a testament <clears throat> to Nehemiah's leadership and his resolve to do what God had called him to do. Given the fact that that he had opposition from the get go, you know he he arrived in Jerusalem. He took three days, kind of rest, and then he started surveying what was going on. And it was like immediately after. I mean, he probably looked, like picked up one stone to start rebuilding the wall, and boom, the opposition came in like a flood. But he knew. And he understood what he had been called to. And nothing was going to get in his way. And there was opposition upon opposition that came uh, at him. And I can imagine, again, coming, surveying the land, what was in front of him. You could, 
you could almost see that there was, it was kind of overwhelming. The walls have been laying dead and dormant for almost 200 years. And nobody has picked up a stone to rebuild it, it seems like. The temple was rebuilt by Zerubbabel and Jeshua, but the walls had not been. And so you could imagine it was a little overwhelming. <clears throat> and when the enemies showed up, <clears throat> they couldn't scare him away. When they threatened him, threatened to kill him, he stood his ground. And when the people were afraid and got scared, he became the encourager to come alongside of them and lift up their arms and encourage them to continue in the work that was so, like, it was so important. And the enemies were not going to deter him in any way. And, and through it all, all in all, God God gave him victory and God got the glory through all of it. Because now we're getting to a portion in the book of Nehemiah where we're going to start seeing the people learning how to worship once again, coming on the scene and just giving it their all. So what do you do when the work is done? Well, you kick it. You drop your guard, right? You, you, you all of a sudden don't worry about a thing, right? You know, because isn't that amazing that oftentimes when we have those battles and we, we kind of go through the battles and all of a sudden it's like, yeah, man, victory, man. You get all excited, you know. And that's exactly what the enemy wants for you to just drop your guard and go, look at this fool, man. He thinks I'm never going to come back. <laughs> that's exactly what a lot of Christians do, and that's exactly what the enemy likes. And I shared a quote with you that I found from, Warren, I think it was Warren Wiersbe last week, where it says, let us be watchful after the, the victory as before the battle. Because the enemy is not a quitter. <laughs> and he stays on in the battleground when all of a sudden we're getting all excited and we start going into the playground. And we think like, oh yeah, now we can go play. And it's like, he's like, I, I think I shared it last week. He's like those guys that th still think that the war's going on, the Vietnam War is still going on, because they've been in the, th it's like, man, they're still looking, man. <laughs> the war's still on for them, and that's what Satan is. He never gives up on the battle. We see that even when, when, when Jesus was being tempted by him, and, and, and he used the word against him to, 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 to fend him off, and it's not like he's saying, ah, won't do it. He came back again and again. And so that's what the enemy continues to do. He may leave us for a time, but it's only to strategize what his next move will be. He will lay low as long as he needs to when we let down our guard and, and we have a false sense of security and he never gives up. You see, the enemy loves to capitalize even on our victories. Um, there's a quote that I learned a long time ago. I even had to call my wife to remind me of this. It says, an unguarded strength is a double uh, weakness. So be careful. Because when you think you're, you're strong and strengthened, be careful, man. It's an unguarded weakness. So Nehemiah chapter 7, let's go through the first four verses. Then it was when the wall was built and I had hung the doors when the gatekeepers, the singers, the Levites, and the Levites had been appointed, 
that I gave the charge of Jerusalem to my brother Hanani and Hananiah, the leader of the citadel, for he was a faithful man and feared God more than many. And I said to them, Do not let the gates of Jerusalem be opened until the sun is hot. And while they stand guard, let them shut and bar the doors and appoint guards from among the inhabitants of Jerusalem, one at his watch station and the other in front of his own house. Now the, peop- now the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few and the houses were not rebuilt. So less than two months of, of him getting to Jerusalem, the wall is now built and finished. Which means that Nehemiah, it took Nehemiah longer to pray for the situation at hand when he was still up in Persia, when he got the news in chapter 1 that the walls were just destroyed and had been like that for so long, it took him three months of prayer and fasting before he even brought it before the king whom he was serving. And so it took him longer to pray than it took him for the work. And I just think that's phenomenal. It also took him about that same amount of time, about two months, for him to come from Babylon area, or no, Shushan, which was even above that, which would be in modern-day Iran. It took him about two months to travel from there all the way down to Jerusalem. And so it took him just as long of, of a journey as it did to build the wall. And so for about five months from hearing it, he gets there, and all of a sudden, in 52 days, he is done with the wall. And again, it goes back to the resolve of this man, of what he was going to, to, to accomplish, because he was called to. Now, I'm sure that there had been spiritual warfare during his time of prayer, because the enemy loves to attack us when we're praying about something. I'm sure of it. Doesn't tell us there was, but I'm sure of it. And during even his travel time, I'm sure that the enemy was always coming at him. Whichever direction, but he was steadfast to get to the destination. But the onslaught of the enemy, we we see that again, as the building began, the enemy just came in like a flood. And he tried every which way to get into this man's head. <laughs> he, he, he tried every which way to stop the work. If he couldn't get to him personally, he started going after the people. If he couldn't go after the people, they tried to sneak in and infiltrate. However they could get in to try and stop the work to the, to the point of saying, they're going to kill you. And he's going, my life is not that precious to me. The work before the Lord is more important than anything. And so he was going to continue to build. And again, it goes goes to his credit of, of what type of man he was. Because he did not stop praying this whole time. Every time that the opposition came, he shot up a quick prayer to the Lord to say, Lord, you're in charge here. Lord, you take care of the situation. Lord, you take care of those people that are talking bad about you. 
not so much about me, but about you, Lord. You take care of that situation. And so it's a credit to his continual prayer. Guys, I can't tell you how important that is for us. That again, man, that we should be daily seeking the Lord. Absolutely. But moment by moment, I don't know how you handle work or life or, or whatever you do in life. But man, oh man, that, that Nehemiah would be an example to us of just praying constantly, always. Just lifting it up to the Lord, whatever's before you. And again, man, God is the God who hears our prayers. He is the one that sits in heaven with a listening ear always ready. I, I, I find it fascinating that Nehemiah was never considered and never considered himself to be a prophet, nor was he a king in any way. But come to think about it, he was never a contractor either, but he gave it a shot. <laughs> he, was a, he was a cup bearer. That's what he was, man. He, he was just, he, he was a uh, uh, he was a good man for sure, a good-hearted man, but he, he, he worked for a living like, like most of us. And I include myself because I don't know why after 20, almost 20 years being on staff here, I still consider myself a construction worker. That's what I am. People say, who, who are you? I, I work construction. Well, I happen to be a pastor right now, but I work construction. But, but he, that's, that's what he did, man. He was, he was just a cupbearer. He had no authority except that the king gave him the authority to go and rebuild the wall. And again, I don't know if he ever had done any construction work at all, but, but this man, he was just a regular guy who, 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 whom God gave a deep burden when he heard about the situation going on in the Jewish community and in his homeland, of which he had never been to. But I'm sure he had heard the stories and had visions of it and understood what it was all like, and in its glory especially. And when he was made aware of this whole situation, he took off to, to Jerusalem. He could not let it go. And God began to stir him. He had a, a good and respectable position at work with the Persian king. He working, working really close to him in the palace, right there next to him. And he found favor with this king. And I think it speaks volumes of this man's character. I, I, I believe that he was a young man. I can't find anywhere how old he was when all of this was happening but again just kind of going through the culture of of the persians and the and the and, and the babylonians they, they wanted the the, the good-looking young men in, uh, you know training them the ways of their customs and stuff and so i can imagine he was probably a young good-looking young man um that that was there and so this young man he 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 finds favor in the eyes of the king. And when he was made aware of all of this kind of stuff that was going on, he lets the king know. And I almost think that there had to be something that the king saw in his cupbearer. That this man, and I don't know if he was the leader of other cupbearers, or if he was the only cupbearer, I don't know. Except that, Maybe he didn't see himself as a leader, but the king probably did. Because when he asked for permission to go, the king gives him permission. 
to go and take on this task. As this man began to pray, the Lord began to show him what he was supposed to do. And maybe that's why it took him longer to pray than to build. He was that type of man. He wanted God to be in this situation. And I I believe that the Lord confirmed it in his heart time and time again, even as he was praying. And when it was time to, to, to talk to the king and when it was time to step out, the Lord had already gone before him. It is quite possible, again, that Nehemiah never saw himself as a leader, but God saw him as a leader. The Lord had been preparing him for this. And I know that not everybody is called to be a leader like Nehemiah. I understand that. But all of a sudden, this man, this young man, finds himself in a place of leading. And there are two major aspects to leading. And in many ways, I believe that it's also a gift, especially in the spiritual realm, a gift from the Lord to be a leader. The the, the first aspect is that you begin to take the initiative to lead. All of a sudden, people are looking at you and going, that guy's a leader. And the second aspect is that when you look back, people are actually following you. (laughs) That's a good sign of a leader, that people are willing to follow you <laughs> over a cliff even. <laughs> going, I'm going that way and people are going, I'm going with you, bro. I'm on. I'm going in that direction to have vision and to go for the vision and to turn around going, man, people, you're either, you're, you're either thinking people are dumb enough to follow me or God is doing a mighty work because I don't know if I would follow me. But God... God, like, like this young man, all of a sudden, when he had this initiative to begin to lead, there was people that was coming on board. And so when he left, he did not leave by, by himself. He had a whole entourage that came. And, and the fact of the matter is that when he got there and he started looking at what God had in front of him, as overwhelming as it was, he didn't just go, I'm a cupbearer. I had a good gig going on back there, man. Maybe I should just go back. What was I thinking? You know, I'm biting off way more than I could chew. He looks at the situation, and as I believe that as he walked the area, he was praying, surveying, going, okay, Lord, how do you want me to do this? And when he gathered all the leaders of Jerusalem together, men who had been living there amongst the rubble for years, people that were probably older than him, when he gets them together, all of a sudden, he starts telling them, this is what God wants to do. And even the high priests that had been there for so long and seen the rubble, all of a sudden, they're all on board going, this young man knows what he's talking about. <laughs> Again, man, he probably said, I'm actually just a cupbearer, peeps, but I'm going for it. I, I know what God has called me, and I will start building this wall by myself if I have to. And I don't think he had to build, build it by himself for any length of time. I truly believe that, that he found favor in the eyes of all of these people because the Lord was upon him. And when the Lord prompted him to, to move, he left and he didn't look back. 
he went for it. And in less than two months, he had rallied all the people and they had finished the wall. What an amazing feat. What an amazing thing it says about this young man, about a man who's willing to listen to God's voice through prayer and probably through his word and then to just move and do it. And people were following. But now that the wall is rebuilt, he is going to go back to his job. Now, I was looking for the timeline here because I know in chapter 5, it says that he was there for 12 years. And, and I was battling with this because I know that he will be there for 12 years. So it's quite possible that the, the verse, verse 14 in chapter 5 is when he, he writes the book and he kind of throws in what was going to happen. Because again, back in chapter 2, when he tells the king that he had this burden to go, that not only the king but his wife says, when are you going to be back? I really don't think that he said... Uh, let me give you an estimation of about 12 years. <laughs> Dude, just quit, man. Just move on, man. We'll get somebody else. I, I, I truly believe that he says it will probably be this length of time. No longer. Again, not knowing what to expect, but it would take him two months to leave, another almost two months to finish the job. <clears throat> And it would take him at least a month to get back if he didn't have a big old entourage going back. So to be able to tell the king, I will be back within a year, six months, whatever the time is. But he will come back eventually because chapter 5 or, or uh, chapter 13 tells us that he will be there for a, a length of time. And so, again, he would be appointed governor, but I don't think it happened in two months. Although, the character of this man, the type of worker that he was, people are going, man, let's put this guy in charge of us right now. The guy's willing. The guy's able. The guy is ready to do the work. So, I believe that he was going to take off because it tells us that he left other people in charge and so he would probably be back in no time soon so like any good leader nehemiah knows that he cannot do all the work himself even though he did say in verse one that he hung the doors or the gates it's like okay by by i did it you mean by we did it <laughs> just like when i take credit for stuff here it really just isn't me it's like everybody collectively all my staff and all the people around me and so more than likely he had all these people and so nehemiah he appointed gatekeepers a little worship music in the background the singers um and, and then the, the, the Levites. And the Levites were different from the priests. The Levites, they did a lot of the work around the temple. They, they couldn't go into the holies of holies. They were limited. But they did a lot of the work for the priests. And so they were kind of deaconish, elderlish, but, but not priestly. Um, and so all these guys are put in place. And, and so all of a sudden, all of this is taken care of. And you look at the walls are done. Everything is done. And what good are walls and what good are gates if there's no one to keep an eye on what is going on? 
And so what he is doing before he leaves, Nehemiah is setting up a, the security measures around the perimeter of the walls. Because even though the walls are up, even though the gates are up, the enemy likes to climb walls. He likes to dig ditches. He likes to put his, his foot in the door when they kind of creep the door open a little bit. He just puts his door, his foot in there. You know, he, he, he will sneak in any way he, he can. And so he sets up people that will take care of the, 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 the city as a whole. And I love the fact that he gives them the instructions of when to open the gates and when to close the gates. When to be on guard and how to be on guard and to pit, put people on the wall in these areas but also put people in front of their houses. Because he knew and he understood that people will fight for their families to the death if need to, if need be. And so he continues to, to, to kind of put everybody in these places that, that are responsible. You know, there, there's a responsibility. It's a huge task. Now, again, when you start looking at people that might be guarding here, doing that, people singing in the background, whatever the case is, you might think, man, these are thankless jobs, man. People just, you know, they have to do these kinds of jobs. It's like, no, they were huge. Without these types of people, then, then again, the, what good are the walls if nobody's going to take care of the walls? What good are the gates if nobody's going to be guarding the gates and, and finding out who's coming in and out? These people were trusted to be on their job. And people were relying on them to do their job, to be there to protect and to guard and to do whatever was necessary didn't matter that people didn't thank them for, for doing what they were supposed to be doing. They were there because they understood that without them, the walls and the gates were worthless. I found a quote where it says, gates and walls are only as good as the people who guard them. I, I had read something about the Great, China, uh, Great Wall of China that the only times that it, it, it was... Um, penetrated was from from people that because guards were bribed <laughs> and people were able to penetrate and so what good is a wall if there's somebody who's willing not to be there and be responsible and protective of the people around there and so nehemiah gave them all the instructions that they needed and even though the job was done the work continued and guys our work continues always there's times where the Lord gives us some rest, but man, oh man, there's always work in front of us that the Lord has for us. And that we would continue as they were supposed to, uh, to be sober and vigilant because the enemy does not stop roaming. Um, and so those who guarded the wall, it says, were among the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The people themselves were willing to be used. And they were placed in the perfect position because they were placed in a place where, where it was close to their heart, close to their, their homes, if you will. So because it seems that Nehemiah would be going back to the king, to his job. And as I was thinking about that, I'm thinking, man, he's had all this authority and this power, right? And when he gets back, he goes back to his job as a cupbearer to work for somebody else. 
Again, man, to me, it just speaks of, of his, his character, his humility, that he would be willing to humble himself and say, I'm a cupbearer. That's all I is. <laughs> That's all I ever will be. And yet, man, he had no clue that God would use him the way he did. And so because he's going back because he promised the king and the queen that he would be back, he, he was going to leave his brother Hanani and this other, bro, this other guy, uh, not a brother, Hananiah, in charge. Which means that in less than two months, he had that kind of authority over Jerusalem. The, the, again, the people that have been living there for years looked at this man and say, this man we could trust. And so when he's leaving, he's not so much giving it back to the people that had already been there, although there's a couple of guys, uh, Rephaniah and, and Shulam, that we saw back in chapter 13. These guys were leaders of the half districts uh, district of Jerusalem. So he probably used those guys as well. And so he has these men who he is entrusting what has been done to take care of the, the, the city that he, he will be leaving. Now, some people might be tempted to say that Nehemiah was, was, uh, was using some nepotism here by getting his brother involved and leaving it to his brother. But this trust that he had uh, of him reminds me of what the Apostle Paul says about his son in the faith, Timothy in, in, in Philippians chapter 2 verse 20 to 22 where it says, For I have no one like-minded who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ Jesus. But you know his proven character that as a son with his father, he served with me in the gospel. And I truly believe that it wasn't just because it was his brother, but because he could trust this young man. And I believe it's probably a younger brother, but it, I could be wrong. But more than likely, he leaves this man because he had a heart like he had. And he was willing to give it to him and say, here, you take care of this. And I could guarantee you that the people there knew his proven uh, character as well. That they could trust Hanani with this whole thing. And this other guy, Hananiah, the key to him, as we look here in verse 2, was the fact that he was a faithful man and he feared God more than many. And again, what a character to have that somebody would be able to say we trust him because he fears God. Not because he's good looking, not because he could smooth somebody over, not because he can manipulate the situation, because he fears God. And I would say, man, that people would be able to trust you and I, not because of how we can smooth our way into situations, because they know that you fear God. Because they know that you are God-fearing, doesn't matter your age. That people would be able to say that about us. That they would trust us. That when somebody is leaving, that they would turn to you and say, you need to take over what I have, I'm leaving here. That, that somebody would do that in your life because they've seen your character. They've seen the way you, you operate. They've seen your faithfulness. You see, it is so amazing when you're able to leave and you don't have to worry about what's going on behind you. 
And I believe that that is where this man was. That as he was going back to the king, these two men especially, and maybe the other two, that he says, I'm going, but you guys can handle it all. These guys were dependable. And what a comfort that must have been to him. And for the people as well. You see, the greatest ability is dependability. Another quote that I stole. It says a lot about a person when you're dependable. When other people are looking to you and saying, man, bro, if you're not here, man, how are we going to do this? And I know that oftentimes God moves people around because he wants to raise other people up. But when you're put in a position where people are trusting you, are, are depending upon you, it's huge. And I know that as a pastor here, man, to be able to leave whenever I have to be gone, to not even worry, although I can't stop thinking about stuff that goes on around here. The fact of the matter is that I really don't have to worry about a thing because all you guys that, that, that help around here, it's like, yeah, you guys can do it with or without me. And it's a comfort, it really is, to be able to leave and not worry about a thing. And it tells us in verse 4 that, that the city was large and spacious, but the people in it were few, and the houses were not rebuilt yet. Now, now that the wall was built... It was time to rebuild the houses. And it seems that for so long, the people had let Jerusalem just kind of decay. And and, and they were okay with that. And and I guess I could understand it to a point because I I think when when things start decaying in, in life, you get overwhelmed and you almost start going like, I just don't have the energy to fix it. I don't have the energy to, to jump back in. I just can't. And, and, and sometimes you need somebody like a Nehemiah to come on the scene and just kind of swirl things up. To kind of just kind of come in like a, like a tidal wave or come in like a, a hurricane or come in like a tornado or come in like whatever other metaphors we can use. To come in and just like get people moving and back on their feet going, man, There's this newfound excitement about what God is doing in this place, in your life, in people's lives, that all of a sudden a guy like Nehemiah can come in and rally the troops, if you will, and get the people moving again. And so now that two months into it, the walls are built, the people are going, you know what, I need to fix my house now too. I need to take care of home. I need to to get things moving because I've let it stay dormant for so long. And again, man, if God has gifted us with certain things in our lives and we have not been using those gifts, then they just kind of become dormant. And yet God doesn't take away His gifts, man. They're just there. And it's almost like when when Paul told Peter or Paul told Timothy, hey, stir up that gift that's within you, man. Get it going again. Don't just sit there, man. If God has called you, don't let it just sit there and do nothing. And that's what this guy does. He comes in and all of a sudden the people are going, man, this this is bigger than all of us. But man, if that young man can come in and do what he has done, I'm willing to do the same thing. And so again, sometimes it takes a man like Nehemiah to come, you know, who's on fire and just kind of give us that spark that we need. Nehemiah was passionate in, the, in what the Lord had called him to do, and it was almost contagious, because as he began to lead, other people began to follow. 
And they did things that Nehemiah um, could never do. He couldn't fix all their houses. They had to fix their own houses. But he got there and he encouraged the people and there was something that was happening because he was called to do a certain thing and those people were called to guard, to take care, and to build their own houses. Um, he was getting taken out of the way for a time to allow others to be raised up and take the lead. And so he was uh, uh, allowing that to happen. I have a, I wrote this down, I have a plaque on my desk that my son got me from the Reagan Library. And I guess he had this, this exact one on his desk, the real one. Okay, it's a replica. Where, where it says this, There is no limit to what a man can do or where a man can go if he doesn't mind who gets the credit. And I truly believe that Nehemiah was that kind of man. He just knew that God had called him. But he, he could care less if he got the credit or not. He was going back because he was a cupbearer. And he wanted to go back to his work. He probably enjoyed being the cupbearer. I don't know. I don't know how you would, but be that as it may, he did. I was talking to Daniel about this, and the king's going, man, I'm glad you're back because I've gone through three cupbearers, man. People have been trying to poison me. <laughs> He's probably going, oh, kind of glad I was gone. But Nehemiah was willing to go back to work for someone else. And I just think that's phenomenal of this guy. And he didn't mind who was in charge or who got the credit. Verse 5, you're going, uh, Pastor Zeke, there's 70-some verses. Yes, I know. We will get to all of them tonight. Ver yeah, right. <laughs> Verses 5 through 7, it says, Then my God put it in my heart, to gather the nobles, the rulers, and the people, that they might be registered by genealogy. And I found a register, a register of the genealogy of those who came up in the first return and found written in it, said this, verse 6, These are the people of the province who came back from captivity, of those who had been carried away, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away, and who returned to Jerusalem and Judah, uh, everyone to his city. Those who came with Zerubbabel were Jeshua, Nehemiah, not this one, um, Azariah, Ramaiah, Nahamaniah, Mordecai, not the one from Esther, Belshan, Mithpareth, Bigvai, Nia, I'm going to get tired here. Two more names. Those two guys. We're going to stop right there. Uh, the number of the men of the people of Israel. And so, it, it, he, because Jer, uh, Jerusalem was in this transitional period, um, Nehemiah, it seemed like he wanted to, to populate the city itself, the, where the walls were at, with, with pure Jewish descendants so that the genealogy would continue because it's important that, again, the Jewish race continues because Messiah will come from that. And so we don't know if he knew there was a, a genealogy that existed because that was some 80 years earlier at least, but he found this, this genealogy that had been written back in chapter 2 of Ezra. 
because chapter 2 of Ezra and the rest of this chapter is almost identical. Just about every name is identical. And, and, and you kind of, kind of wonder, like, why would Nehemiah take that and put it here? Probably because he knew that most pastors would just pass up that first <laughs> chapter 2. And so he puts it here going, now I'm going to make you feel guilty. Now you've got to pronounce every name. And that's what we're going to try to do right now, um, is try to pronounce every name that is on there. Um, and, and maybe he just put it in there just to embarrass us in public. I don't know. But no, we're not going to cover every verse here. Um, you could go back to, uh, online and listen to Nehemiah or, or Ezra chapter 2. I didn't name off all the names either. But we went into more detail. Now, Nehemiah's grand total from, from verse 8 to, to verse 67, and he numbers off all these people just almost exactly to chapter 2 of Ezra. Nehemiah's grand total of all the people here are 49,942 people. And it's very, very close to Ezra's grand total of 49,897. The extra 45 in Nehemiah's total are the singers because um, Nehemiah references 245 singers, whereas Ezra only references 200 of them. Why? I don't know. Maybe they joined the band. I don't know. But I like what Warren Wiersbe says about this section. I'm going to give you a couple of quotes. It says, reading this long list of difficult names might be boring to the modern student, but these people were God's bridge, God's bridge from the, the defeat of the past to the hope of the future. These Jews were the living link that connected the historic past with the prophetic future and made it possible for Jesus Christ to come into the world. Ezra 2 and Nehemiah 7 are to the Old Testament what Hebrews 11 is to the New Testament. A listing of the people whose faith and courage made things happen. All these people are important. And you know, I, I, again, names are hard for me. You guys know that. They're hard for most of us. But the fact of the matter is, God knows every one of those names. God knows every one of them. And wouldn't it be interesting that if we learn these names and that when we get to heaven, it's like, dude, I read about you in Nehemiah chapter 7, verse 29. They're going, dude, that's me. Getting all excited. There's another quote here. It says, um, again, quoting... uh, Warren Wiersbe says, The important thing is not to count the people, but to realize that these people counted. In leaving Babylon, they did much more than put their names on a list. They laid their lives at the altar, on the altar, and risked everything to obey the Lord and restore the Jewish nation. They were pioneers of faith who trusted God to enable them to do the impossible. Close quote. Um, I want to read to you these last verses in the New Living Translation from verse 
verses uh, 68 to, to uh, 73 in the New Living Translation. It says, um, they took with them 736 horses, 245 mules, 435 camels, and 6,720 donkeys. Some of the family leaders gave gifts for the work. The governor gave to the treasury 1,000 gold coins, 50 gold basins, and 530 robes for the priests. The other leaders gave to the treasury a total of 20,000 gold coins and some uh, 2,750 pounds of silver for the work. The rest of the people gave 20,000 gold coins, about 2,500 pounds of silver, and 67 robes, for the priests, so the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and some of the common people settled near Jerusalem. The rest of the people returned to their own towns throughout Israel. And so once again, we get this genealogy of all these people that were involved that were willing to do the work. And I just think it's fascinating that, again, for some reason the Lord wanted these people doubled up in two different books to take up a whole chapter because it was important to God. It, it, it might be confusing for us, but it was important for God. And the, 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 the great thing about this is, is that you might feel like you're so insignificant, but God knows your name. And he has your name, if you are a believer, written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Isn't that amazing? Let's, let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your faithfulness, Lord. Thank you so much for your goodness and your grace, Lord. That you have totally, totally, Lord, God, just blown us away. Lord, teaching us about a young man named Nehemiah, Lord. The character and the favor that he found, even uh, with a Persian king. I'm so grateful, Lord God, that he has gone down in history as one who is willing to hear your voice and willing to obey your voice, Lord. Father, that we, Lord God, would be obedient as we hear your word, Lord, as, you, as we hear you speak to us and call us to do whatever you've called us to do, Lord, that we would be faithful, that we would perform what you have called us to perform, Lord. We thank you, Lord, and we praise you for being such a good God to us. In Jesus' name, amen.